Peter is more worried about his power, his comfort, his privilege that comes with being with the Messiah rather than what the Messiah is meant to do. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Good? Good? Hey, I like the waves. Good to see everybody's faces. Um, Like Cole said, my name's Carlos. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And if I could be real, I'm bringing a lot to the pulpit this morning. So if I start crying, just... Just let me, just let me cry. Um, <laughs> um, I, uh, it's been a challenging week for our family. Uh, my family's in Florida. So anyway, uh, so just be patient with me. I just asked for, for, that, for that patience this morning. Um, I'm going to pray because I need it. Um, and then we're just going to get after it because I got too many notes up here. Um, Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for the reminder that you gave me even while we were singing, Lord, um, that I am your beloved, that you look at me, Lord, and you don't want my performance, you don't want my charisma, you just want me, Lord, and um, I've, uh, I've needed that this week, Lord, and... Um, I just pray that um, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who, are, who is questioning, Lord, whether or not you love them and you want them, I pray that you would just make it crystal clear, Lord, that the answer is an astounding yes. Yes. And as we look at your words, Lord, um, and we see this call that seems impossible It seems impossible to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow you, Lord. I pray that we would see, Lord, that in Christ it is possible. Um, And so just to be real, God, and I just, I need to preach this to myself this morning. And so um, encourage my heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter eight, uh, verses 31 through, uh, chapter nine, verse one. So if you're able to stand, let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to read the word of God this morning. I'm reading from the CSB version, but you guys will get the, you will get the gist. Um, if you have a different translation, this is the word of the Lord. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary. Everybody say necessary. Necessary. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples Looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And then he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Mm, This is good news. This is the word of the Lord. It is good. It is true. You may be seated. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King, he's one of my heroes of the faith, um, both for his commitment to God and his commitment to seeking justice and, and ethnic and racial reconciliation um, here in America. If you, if you go in my office in there, which you guys can as we potluck it up today, uh, you'll see that I have many of my heroes of the faith kind of surrounding my, my, uh, my bookcase in there. He's, he's at the top of this. Um, now, I mention his name not because I want to talk about social injustices or anything like that, right? That's, that's not the sermon for this. Uh, but what I do want to show is how um, this radical call that we just read about of, of discipleship um, that we see in our text is actually something that we can obtain, right? To follow Jesus in this way, we can actually do it. And I, I say this because when you first read the text, like I did when I opened my, my Bible on Monday, uh, you may find the words of Jesus hard and not easy to swallow. Especially in our age of acceptance and tolerance and political correctness, what Jesus says about following him may tempt you to shut out and complete, like shut out completely to the requirement that he has for anyone who would come after him or anyone who would want to be a Christian, um, you may be tempted to believe that this way, this road of discipleship, it is impossible. And if that's you this morning, I just ask that you will fight to not check out and to press um, into the entirety of the message. That's just my one ask this morning. Um, don't check out because I promise the Lord, I believe Lord, the Lord has something for, for you if that's you. Um, When I think of Dr. King, um, he knew all too well the requirement and the cost that it carried um, of discipleship, and yet he still walked the narrow path that that it laid out. Um, One of the clearest ways that I've seen this um, is in his letter that he wrote from a jail cell uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, after peacefully demonstrating and after peacefully sitting in a uh, whites-only restaurant. Um, Dr. King was arrested and thrown into jail, and while in jail, eight other clergymen, eight other religious people, pastors, they wrote a public letter to him, essentially calling him to stop the work that he was doing, calling him to discontinue the work that he was suffering for because it was hard, and he was being persecuted for it, and he was going to suffer and as we look at our text this morning, we, some, we see something very similar, right? Don't we, we see that? We, when we step onto our scene, we see that Peter, right, right before this, um, he has just identified the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. 
Peter has just seen clearly that this is, this is the chosen one. This is the one that has been prophesied from our forefathers. This is the one who would deliver the people of God and usher in the kingdom of God. This is the one who would come and defeat the enemies of God. And it's almost as if this pronouncement is still coming off of his lips. That Peter, uh, it's, it's, it's almost as if as these words are still coming off of Peter's uh, lips, that we learn something about what this Messiah, what this Savior must do. Right after Peter gets a revelation about who God's Messiah is, he learns that this dude whom all the people of God have been waiting on for years and years, that, that this dude would have to suffer. And not only would he suffer, but it would be necessary for him to suffer. And not only would it be necessary for him to suffer, but that he would be rejected by the religious leaders of his day. And not only would he be rejected by the religious leaders of his day, but he would be killed and he would rise three days later, whatever that means. So like the eight clergymen did toward Dr. King, Peter pulls Jesus to the side and tries to convince him against what um, he's saying he's going to do. Um going to be too hard suffer you don't you don't you're not going to suffer you don't want to suffer for righteousness right i imagine peter after hearing all this i imagine peter has to think that jesus is out of his mind that he's not thinking straight that he that he has this messiah thing all wrong this good work that the messiah will do shouldn't come with heartache and struggle should it Peter is probably thinking, man, we have, we've suffered long enough. This, what you're saying can't be right. He's probably imagining that anything good and righteous, it shouldn't come with pain, shame, or even death. And so just like those eight religious leaders who wrote to Dr. King in that Birmingham jail, Peter seeks to correct Jesus' actions and detour him to detour Jesus from this mission that he's just said. Our text tells us that he took him to a side, to the side and began to rebuke him. Now, this word rebuke means that Peter just began to correct Jesus. You could say that Peter was trying to put Jesus in his place. You could say that Peter was going to tell Jesus what the Messiah really was going to do. You could say that Peter was going to teach his teacher or attempting to teach his teacher. And realizing this and seeing the crowd and the disciples around, Jesus takes this misunderstanding of Peter as an opportunity to provide clarity for them all. Jesus takes this moment to provide clarity on two things. One, first thing being that Peter, in fact, doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Like, bro, you ain't got it. Not, Not yet. You don't know what he's talking about. And that this revelation of the Messiah that he has, although it's true, it is incomplete. And secondly, he displays to, that, uh, that, to Peter that his rebuking of Jesus' necessary suffering, shame, and death isn't only a misunderstanding, but it is in fact in step with the very actions of the adversary. Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus loudly rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. Woo! Man. Think about the awkward moment that is, like, between Jesus and Peter, and the disciples are like, like, oh, yeah. 
It's a cringe moment for sure. Jesus loudly rebukes Peter, calls Peter Satan, and tells him to get behind it because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus responding so aggressively toward Peter? Isn't Peter only trying to look out for his teacher and his friend? What's happening here that seems to trigger Jesus' accusation that, that, that Peter is, is walking with, is in line with Satan? Well, Jesus answers that in our text, doesn't he? He says that Peter isn't thinking about the things of God, but he is concerned about human concerns. Or to put it another way, Peter isn't focused on what God is trying to accomplish on a cosmic level. He is more concerned about his teacher not leaving him. And what is more, and if I could just make the the needle a little sharper here. What is more is that now that Peter knows Jesus is the Messiah, his rebuke of Jesus reveals that Peter is more worried about his power, his comfort, his privilege that comes with being with the Messiah rather than what the Messiah is meant to do. Makes sense, right? This is, this is the Messiah, right? We've made it. He is the savior of our people, the deliverer of our nation, the one who called, the one who was called and sent by God to destroy our enemies. He will rule over all things. He will rule through all things. He has, and he has called me to follow him. He has called me to follow him. And in Peter's mind, I assume, he's like, I made it. Like, I, I made the VIP, like the, the velvet rope. I'm, I'm in there, you know? Let's just build our kingdom, Jesus. We don't have to suffer. We, don't, we, can, we can build a great platform for ourselves. We can get this really dope marketing strategy and get, like, this great social media presence. They ain't have that, but you know what I'm saying. Um, this whole suffering, shame, and death thing, this is not, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. When you put it that way, well, it totally makes sense why Peter would respond the way he did, right? But it also makes a little more sense why Jesus responded the way that he did. In fact, this is the same way that Satan tempted Jesus at the beginning of Mark, isn't it? At the beginning of Mark, if you haven't been here, you need a refresher. We see Jesus, he's driven out to the wilderness. And what does Satan tempt him with? Well, we don't get as much commentary about that in Mark because it's super fast. But if you go back to the book of of Matthew, it gives a little bit more commentary on what is actually, what's happening during this temptation. I lost my place. Hmm. He's tempted. what What we see is this. He's tempted by Satan to provide for himself, to stop the mission altogether, and probably, and probably most significantly to our text this morning, to build a kingdom without suffering. Yeah, I think that's it. That notion of the kingdom spreading without suffering, death, and the resurrection of the Messiah seems, in my opinion, to thrust Jesus to call Peter Satan. Jesus says, get behind me. Or... If you read it with 21st century language, get out of my face with all that. (laughs) Get out of my face with all that. What Jesus sees is Peter's desire for the kingdom of God to come without the seeds that the kingdom of God requires. 
Peter wants Jesus to have the crown of the kingdom of God, that the, the kingdom of God produces, but he fails to see that this crown has thorns. Peter wants to follow after his teacher, but he can't comprehend that this teacher says that the path is paved through shame, suffering, and death. But as we look back at our text, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that was a long intro, and this brings me to my first point. <laughs> this brings me to my first point, which is the call toward discipleship. Uh, this word discipleship is just this fancy word that theologians and church people like me use to describe following the way of Jesus. It's... Um, following after the pattern of Jesus. And we see that in the text, right? We see that Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, what Jesus is saying to the crowd and what he is saying to his disciples is that if you want to walk in step with me, if you want to live how I live, if you want to move how I move, if you want to pattern your life after I have patterned my life, then this is what you must do. This is what you gotta do. There's no negotiations here. There's no, well, how about I take the first two and not the last? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, and he's saying, if you want to follow after me, if you want to call yourself my student, if you want to call yourself my, my disciple, Frontier Church, if you want to call yourself a Christian, this is what it means. He is providing clarity. This is the requirement that you have to meet. He wants to provide clarity. He doesn't, want anybody, he doesn't want anybody who wants to follow him to have a blurry expectation of what it means to truly be his disciple. And I think he has that same heart for us this morning. So much of what it means to be a Christian is convoluted. I mean, if you just Google what does it mean to be a Christian, you're going to get many, many, many lists. But make no mistake about it, Frontier, this is what Jesus requires. And what does he say? <laughs> what does he say? What does it mean to follow Jesus? He says, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Deny yourself. What does this mean? What does it mean when he says that we have to deny ourselves? Does this mean that we don't care about ourselves? Does this mean that we stop looking out for our basic needs? Does this mean that we disregard who we are and the way that God has wired us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look. This word deny here that we see in the text, it literally means to disregard all personal interests. It means to find no joy in ourselves and to look outside of ourselves to find our true self. To deny yourself is to consciously decide to no longer live for yourself. And in our postmodern, I would even say post-Christian society, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? That sounds hard. That sounds archaic and ancient. What do you mean, don't look out for my own interests? What do you mean, don't look out for my own enjoyment? What do you mean, to deny myself means to consciously, what do you mean? Like, what does it mean? 
Well, it means what it, it means, you know, like deny yourself. Following after Jesus means following him. It means following what he says. It means letting your actions and decisions be filtered through what he says. To follow Jesus means to deny what you think is right and let him answer that question for you. To put it more bluntly, because I love you guys. To put it more bluntly, it means that he, desi- he decides what our sexual ethic is, not us. It means that he decides what life is, not us. To put it more bluntly, it means that he decides how you spend your money, not us. To put it more bluntly, it means that he decides how you spend your time, your talent, not us. To deny ourselves means that we have our whole lives oriented around what he says is right for us. We deny what we think is right. Jesus says, deny yourself. But he goes on. He says, take up your cross. The call of discipleship says, take up your cross. Now for us, this has kind of lost its significance because everywhere you go, we see crosses, right? There's one behind me. Crosses have become a fashion statement. If you listen to hip hop culture, or if you know, like, if you're privy to hip hop culture, it's just part of the fashion and the fad. I mean, I'm wearing a cross right now. Like, it's just kind of plain sight. So, what's so radical about the cross? Well, if you were listening to Jesus and you were in this culture, you would have been utterly disgusted that he would have said, To follow me means to take up your cross. You would have been disgusted because the cross was reserved only for criminals and slaves. And the cross was a way of publicly executing criminals and slaves in the most shameful and painful and the most dehumanizing way possible. It was used to do three things. It was used to bring shame, bring suffering, and ultimately bring death. And as disgusting And as disgusting as this would have sounded to his followers and his disciples, Jesus says that if you're going to come after me, this is what you got to do. Now, as a note, to bring more clarity, it doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, we go out and we look for shame, suffering, and death, right? We're not on on this hunt to find it. We're not supposed to, you know, We're not going searching for it. That makes sense, what I'm trying to say. But what he is saying is that there is a life that he has called his disciples to, one in which in their denying themselves that will put them in situations where they will be shamed, they will suffer, and they may even die. And as we seek to follow after in the footprints of our Savior, we will inevitably be people marked by crosses. And maybe some of you guys know that in here. Maybe some of you, you know what it means to take up your cross. Maybe some of you, because of your decision to follow Jesus, you have been shamed as unloving or old school or out of touch. Maybe you've been canceled Maybe you've been called all sorts of names. For some of you, you've suffered because of following Jesus. 
This doesn't happen here as much, but there are countless of stories of people in places who have decided to trust Jesus. And as a result, they are kicked out of homes, they are disowned, they are beaten, and more. And then there are some who, have, who gave the ultimate sacrifice. And because of following Jesus to the end of the world and to places that are extremely hard, they suffer death. But you don't have to go to hard places or third world countries or uh, the 1040 window to experience this death. This sometimes even happens here in America. In fact, that was Dr. King's story. Dr. King heard the call of discipleship and he denied himself. He took up his cross and he followed after Jesus. And although those eight clergymen attempted to keep Dr. King from pursuing reconciliation in the name of Jesus... He continued. He continued to the point of shame. He continued to the point of suffering. And ultimately, he continued to the point of death. He was killed for it. And as I have surveyed this call, this call of Jesus, and as I have looked at this hero of mine, and as I have considered my own desires to follow Jesus, I'm left wondering, how the heck do I do this? Like, how do I do this? This week has been a struggle for me in many ways, but it has been a struggle for me to write this sermon because following Jesus in this way, it just, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. I don't know. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to take up my cross, right? Following Jesus has been hard. And the last thing that I felt I needed was to be smacked in the face with the reality that this is the normative experience for Christians. This week, as I have looked at our text, I have wondered, God, this is, God, is this worth it? Is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth a denial? Is it worth giving up my rights? Is, is following Jesus worth taking up my cross? Is it worth the shame that I experience sometimes from my non-believing friends and family members? Is it worth the ridicule and the mockery that Hollywood and social media tend to throw at me for being a Christian? This week I have asked myself, is there another way to follow you? <laughs> is there an easier way to follow you? A way where... My wants and my desires aren't a barrier, a barrier, excuse me. Is there a way that, in, that involves just a little less cross, you know what I'm saying? Just like, just a little bit less. If I could be honest, this week's text, it just it's messed me up. Me and Joseph, we got coffee um, on Thursday. And we were talking about this and I was like, bro, I have no idea. <laughs> How could I? Like, I have nothing to give to this. It's just been so hard. It's, it, this, this text, is, it just messed me up and exposed me. And even after following Jesus for over a decade and being a pastor, I, I find myself looking at my, at my text and being like, Lord, I feel more like Peter than I do Dr. King. And I imagine that I'm not the only one in here this morning that feels that. I assume that Jesus also knew that the disciples whom he called and the followers who were around him believed this as well. So after giving the command of discipleship, Jesus gave the how of discipleship. This is my second point. It was a long point. But this is my second point. 
the how of discipleship. How do we do this? How do we live up to such a call? Let's reread our verse 35 through 38 again. He says, "Forever, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man, excuse me, profit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Lose your life. The, the first how of discipleship is by recognizing that our resistance toward losing our life, a.k.a. taking up our crosses, actually produces death. Jesus is saying that by living a life on your own terms and in your own way, it leads to a, actually a loss of life. Right? Sure, for 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, you go through life as if you are the master of your soul and the captain of your fate. But at the end of your life, what do you have to show for it? Jesus says, you want to follow after me? Live your life in a way that lays down your life for Jesus and the gospel. If you live that way, you will save your life. On a macro level, that starts with surrendering your life to Jesus and putting your full weight on him. It means laying down your thoughts and preferences and wants and rolling them to the king of kings and the Lord of lords and saying, here, you take it. You take my life and you make it what you want it to be. You write my story. I'm done living a life closed-fisted. I'm done putting you in the box and limiting the way in which you can use my life. I'm done looking to everyone else about how I should live my life. And instead, I'm going to look to you for direction. On a macro level, that's what that means. On a micro level, it could look a, a, a number of ways. But it could look on a macro level like, Business owners capping their salary and giving the rest to organizations in our city to reach the hurting and the loss. It could look like week after week letting fishing poles or hunting gear grow dusty because you've decided to invest your time, energy, and money toward your wife and your children or your roommates so that they can grow in the knowledge of Christ. It could mean walking across the street and inviting your neighbor over with the hope that you get to share your life in the gospel with them. There are many ways that we could lose our life for Jesus and the gospel, but the principle that we get to draw here, we draw from what, what Jesus is saying is that following me, losing your life is the opposite of self-preservation. We lose our life, and in doing so, we save our life. But Jesus goes on, and he gives us a second how of discipleship, and this time he gives us a rhetorical question, doesn't he? He says, what does it benefit someone to gain a whole world and lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Um, and as I was reading this and, and meditating and praying on this, the Lord brought this song by Cinder Hill to my heart. Uh, it, I love the lyrics. It says, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love, it abideth forever. Through eternal years, the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul, with my Savior watching over me, I can sing, though billows roll. 
When Jesus points out this question, he's alluding to the fact that you could gain the entire world and everything that come with it. And at the end of at the end of the day, you could you could lose your soul and be separated from God for an eternity. In this life, you could gain riches and wealth and honor and esteem. You could do good works. You could give all your money to the poor. And in the end, you couldn't trade that for your life. Life isn't earned by gaining and possessing. As we have already mentioned, it's gained by losing. So how do we do this thing called discipleship to Jesus? We don't exchange our life for temporary pleasures of this world. We don't live as if this world and this is it. And lastly, we live into the call of discipleship by not being ashamed of Jesus and his words. Thank you guys for your patience. I know this is going long, but it is what it is. Notice how Jesus adds emphasis here. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation... Meaning that the way of discipleship is a way that pledges allegiance to Jesus. And especially when the broader culture seems to be moving further and further away from the way that God intended our world to be. Especially when the world in which we live in mocks the things of God and makes fun of holiness and righteousness and blatantly seems more in line with darkness and truth. Answering this call of discipleship means to stand on business and say, no, I'm rocking with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I don't care what's popular right now. I'm rolling with the king. So Frontier, I think, I think Jesus is looking us in the eye this morning, and he's asking us today, do you want to follow me? Do you want to live as I have lived and move as I have moved and pattern your life after me? Jesus is saying, well, here, hey, here's the way. Here's the way. It may look differently among different cultures and people in different backgrounds and different seasons of life, but there's only one way. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. You do that by pouring out your life for Jesus and the gospel. You do that by forsaking the world and clinging to God and Christ. And you do that by living unashamedly for Jesus. But again, that sounds good, Pastor Carlos. Thank you for those instructions. How do I do that? I can barely get out of bed in the morning. I can barely get my kids out the door for school. I'm struggling with sickness and heartache and disappointment. It feels like Jesus is just adding a ton of more requirements for my life that I just can't live up to. Is there hope from someone like me, talking to myself, to answer this call of discipleship? Those are valid questions, and those are the right questions to be asking. So if that's you, take heart. It's okay. But really, this burden isn't on you. This burden isn't on me. This burden isn't on us. You were required to answer this call, but it's really a response, isn't it? Right? Discipleship, you could say. Discipleship is a liturgy that calls out to us and we respond in faith. In fact, everything that I have said and everything that we have talked about has already been done for us. And for you, as much as this sermon seems like a list of to do's and what what it really is, is a reminder of what Jesus has already gone before us and done. 
It really is just an example of what is freely yours in Christ. This life of discipleship, though hard and countercultural, is obtainable because there is one that has already gone before you and done it. Jesus is the one who truly denied himself, right? Remember that he was God, yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He denied himself, his heavenly throne, and he put on flesh and he came to us in a manger. He denied himself during his time on earth. And instead of walking around, right, demanding service, demanding um, that, that, that people... Instead of living like the other kings of, of the time, he used his life to serve and to heal and to forgive and to cast out demons and to raise little children back from the dead. Jesus is the one who truly took up his cross, isn't he? Remember what Jesus said in our text. He said that it was necessary for him to suffer. It's necessary because sin is so bad that God had to die, but he's so good that he chose to do it. He suffered ridicule and shame from the religious leaders of his day. He willingly let his creation pull the hair out of his beard and whip his back open bloody and slap him in the face and spit on him. He truly took up his cross by being stripped naked and hung on a cross like a criminal. He truly took up his cross by even in his last breath praying for his executioners. He truly takes up his cross in dying a death that we all deserve. And he is separated from his father. Family, Jesus has done the work of discipleship already. So when we ask, how do we do this thing? How, how do we do this? We look to the finished work of Jesus. Let's look back at our text. Because our text gives us, our text is like this, like, I'm a Christian. So just don't, when I say this, don't freak out. It's like this fortune into the future, right? Jesus says, losing your life will save it. And in the gospel, he loses his life to save ours. Jesus says, Who, how, what can anyone give in exchange for their life? And in the gospel, his life is exchanged with ours. In the gospel, we have been given the very record of Jesus. And in him, our sinful record is nailed to the cross and it is put to death. So that now when God the Father looks at all those who have placed their faith in Jesus, he only sees Jesus' perfect, spotless, pure record. And when he looks at the wounds of Jesus, he sees the penalty that has been paid on our behalf. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And in the gospel, because Christ has ransomed us, we have nothing to be ashamed of when we go before the Father. Because we are one in Christ. And the relationship that Jesus has had with the Father, before time began, it is yours. It is is ours. So family, take heart. May your hearts be encouraged. This hard call of discipleship is just that. It's hard. There are tears, there is suffering, there are crosses, there is heartache, there is sacrifice, there is sickness, there is disease, there is loss. And Jesus calls us to do some seemingly impossible things. 
but our Savior has gone before us. And he will empower you. And when you fail to answer this call, he will look you in the eye and say, I still love you. Let's get back on the horse and keep going. And in faith, holding fast to the finished work of Christ, we can all answer this call of discipleship. And in the end, after we have endured, may the words of Jesus ring true for all of us when he says, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. I just want to remind, I just want to remind us that this is true because three days after he died, three days after they laid him in the graves, he bounced back like elastic and he snatched back the keys of death. And now the kingdom of God is here and it is spreading and, as, and it is spreading through us all. It is spreading as the people of God who are empowered by the spirit of God, who are compelled by the work of God, who are secured by the victory of God, they answer the call of discipleship. So my prayer is that we would be those type of people who who trust in the finished work of Christ, answer this call, and see his kingdom come in Des Moines as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, um, this seems impossible and hard, like I have mentioned. Um, But it is possible, Lord, because the cross behind me, Lord, it is empty. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. And your wounds, they are pleading our case. And your spirit, it is empowering us to answer this call. So I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice who hasn't said yes to Jesus. I pray that today would be that day. I pray that for anyone who is struggling in their walk of discipleship, that you would remind them, Lord, that there is grace and mercy. And although this call is hard, it is possible because you have already done the work. It is is literally a liturgical response of what what you've already done. So in Jesus' name, amen.